You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Now, here is William Stewart on Today in the Word radio. One of the most electrifying and distressing at the same time truths that I find in the Word of God relative to the people of God is found for us in the book of the Revelation. It's a commentary on us. You remember chapters two and three? They contain seven letters from the head of the church to the various ministers and messengers of the church and to the people who compose the church down through its sojourn on earth. And would you believe that in every one of them is this startling statement, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say unto the churches. As though God found by his all-penetrating gaze upon the human heart that most of his people throughout all ages just did not have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit had to say or to impart. It is regretting And it is very distressing and disturbing to me that there is so much of the word of God that is neglected on the part of God's people. When it's all given of God, all of it, and for specific reasons, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But too many of us love to play around in the area of the word of God wherein we just get doctrine or instruction in righteousness. We do not want to subject our hearts to the reproof area of the Word of God and to the correcting areas of the Word of God. May it not be so any longer with you. But oh, that you would have a heart with ears to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. Thus, to that end, I'm going to invite you to turn again to that very neglected book of the Bible called The Prophecy of Amos. Now, I'm sure that if you would go into the average Christian bookstore and search diligently the shelves of the average Christian bookstore, you would not find a commentary, that is, a one-volume commentary or a one-volume exposition on the prophecy of Amos. I'm assuming the reason is because of the message that it contains. The very reason why the majority of us do not give direct and intimate intent and interest to the prophecy of Amos. This is a book that reveals the judgments and the chastisements as well as the corrections of the Lord. I would like to take up, can any claim immunity to the chastisement, the corrections, and the judgments of God? even his people. Is there one child of God that can claim immunity to the chastisements of the Lord? The Bible reveals that there was a man who lived on earth, claimed and identified to be a man after God's own heart, and he was David, the king of Israel. But you recall in an unguarded moment, though he was so blessed of God with military strategy and capacity, he so subdued the enemies of Israel that when his Solomon's son succeeded him to the throne, Solomon never had to lift a finger to defend Israel against any outside interference or enemies. 
But on this particular occasion is revealed in 2 Samuel chapter 11. When the kings of the land were going to battle, David, he left the responsibility of taking his army into battle, that is the army of Israel, to General Joab, knowing that he would do an excellent, excellent work. David retired to his own home, and on this particular occasion, when he didn't have but little to do, he was walking up on the roof of his house. And with some of his associates close by, he looked over in the courtyard, adjoining his own house, and he saw a woman, a beautiful woman, taking a bath. He inquired of his associates who she might be, and they identified her as the wife of Uriah, one of David's soldiers. David says, go get her for me, a man after God's own heart. They went and secured Bathsheba, and you, you recall, they had illicit relationships. And a few weeks or a few months later, Bathsheba notified King David that she was with child, and it was his. Immediately, he sets a machine in order, trying to devise a scheme, which to you and me appears to be the acts of a malignant demon, seeking to cover his sin. But he couldn't hide from God. And so God touches one of his own servants by the name of Nathan. In chapter 12, he says, I want you to go talk to David. He's your friend. And after you have introduced what I want you to say, say this to him. Verse 10, because you have done this thing, the sword shall never depart from your house. The next verse, that's verse 10, verse 11. Because you've done this thing, I will raise up evil in your own house, under your own roof. Verse 12, you did this thing secretly, that is, you thought it was. But I'm going to expose you before all Israel, and wherever mankind is found and the sun rises and sinks, I'm going to let the people know that you cannot cover your sin and prosper. No, my friend, if David was a man after God's own heart, I'm sure he would exceed me and he would exceed you in his spiritual attainments. But here was one, even a man after God's own heart, who could not exempt himself or claim an immunity to the chastisements of the Lord. And there aren't any who can. Now it's remarkable in this wonderful prophecy of Amos, the method God has of dealing with his people Israel. You can recall how that in verse 2, Amos declares to Israel, the Lord will roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. As a lamb, he spoke in grace. But as a judge, the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to roar. And the habitations of the shepherd shall mourn. The heights of Carmel shall wither. And this unique approach God uses to Israel to get their ear and to get their attention that because of their sin, he will chasten them. This unique approach was to inform Israel of the judgment that he is going to lay upon their traditional enemies. And beginning at verse 3, he says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Why? Because Syria, endeavoring to enlarge her borders, invaded the land of Israel at 
Gilead of Israel and took a great parcel of ground and all the inhabitants, instead of letting them live, they, they, they passed threshing instruments of iron over them and allowed the territory to be nothing short of just human bodies torn to shreds. God said, Syria, Damascus, I'm going to judge you for this. He said, I'm even going to take away your security. I'm going to break the bar of the gate. And then he goes on to verse 6. The next enemy, he announces is Gaza for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, which literally means I've let you get by with three transgressions, but the fourth one calls forth my judgment. Gaza, the capital of Philistia, had desired to enlarge their borders and take a parcel of Israel's territory. And in doing so, the inhabitants thereof, they sold to the king of Edom as slaves. And the next enemy, which was Tyre of Sidon, of Philistia, of, um, of Phoenicia, they did the same thing. And on and on and on until we come to chapter 2 and verse 4. The Lord says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, will I not turn away the punishment thereof. The reasons? Because they have uh, uh, ignored the word of the Lord and refused to keep his commandments. And he goes on to the next one in verse 6. He says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and four, will I not remove the punishment thereof? And he gives the reasons. And uh, they're very important reasons. But the way God gets the ear and the interest of Israel is to relate his judgments upon their traditional enemies. If I did this to your enemies, what must I do to you? You have called forth my chastisement, and I'm going to deliver. Now, as God used the enemies of the children of Israel to illustrate to them what he is going to do, God uses Israel as an illustration of what he will do for the believer today. For 1 Corinthians 10:11 says, Now all these things happen unto them for examples, for illustrations, and they are written for our admonition, not somebody else's, but our admonition upon whom the end of the ages are come. Now, if God did this to Israel, he will not forego the child of God. You cannot claim immunity to the chastisements, to the corrections, and to the judgments of God simply because you're a recipient of the transforming grace of God, and I'm a recipient of the transforming grace of God. We have to face up to it that God has a character. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. And you'll take note that after every pronouncement of judgment upon the six traditional is enemies of Israel, that he says, I will bring a fire upon, that is, Syria, or upon Philistia, or upon Phoenicia, or upon Tyre, or upon Edom, or upon Ammon, or upon uh, uh, Moab, and etc. Ah, he's a consuming fire. Even upon Judah, he says, in verse 5 of chapter 2. Now, really, who is Israel? Who is Judah? If you will go to chapter 3, verse 1, you will hear God saying through the lips of Amos, Hear the words of the Lord, which he hath spoken against the children of Israel and the whole family of Israel that is bringing Israel and Judah together under one caption, which I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 2 says, You only have I known of all the people of the earth, 
Therefore will I punish you for all of your transgressions, for all of your iniquities. Now one thing about Israel that we know, she was a privileged people. Privileged because she was a delivered people. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now could God not use Israel as an illustration of the child of God? Oh, how needful it is that the child of God turn around and look at the pit from which you have been digged. The gratitude may well up in our hearts again. We are a delivered people. You know as well as I, the method God used to deliver Israel and Egypt. It was of necessity the Passover lamb be slain. And according to Exodus chapter 12, we read, Verse 1, the Lord spoke unto Moses near in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. The next verse he says, Speak unto all the children of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. He says, If the household be too little for the lamb, the next verse says, And that lamb shall be without blemish. And when you get down to verse 5, he says, They shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood and strike it upon the two side posts, the upper door posts, posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Why do you want the lamb slain, Lord, when you get to verse 12? For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Verse 13, but the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now that interesting word, which is a verb, in the Hebrew language, Pesach, P-A-S-A-C-H, literally means, I will hover over you. Now, not the one word, Passover, is Pesach, but the two words shows God in action. When I see the blood, I'm going to stay right there over your house and hover over your house. And as you read in verse 23, I'm doing it so the destroyer will not come in under your houses and smite you. Now, the majority of us have been inclined to think all through our Christian lives that when God says, I'll see the, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, that when I see the blood on that house, I'm going to skip over it, and I'll go to the next one and see if there's any blood there. If it isn't, well, I'll kill the firstborn in that house. And if um, uh, I go to the next house and the blood is on, then I'll skip over that one, but not so. Pesach literally means to hover over. And so, he says, when I Pesach, when I see the blood, I will Pesach, I will hover over your house and not suffer the destroyer to come in and you and smite you. Well, that was the complete deliverance that he gave for the children of Israel. You remember, according to chapter 14, when he had gotten them out of Egypt, Pharaoh's hosts immediately set in hot pursuit of them. And when you got to the last part of, uh, of, of chapter 14, verse 31, you discover how that uh, God has destroyed Pharaoh and uh, the people of Egypt in the waters of the Red Sea as they pursued the children of Israel. And Israel saw the great work with the, which God did upon the, the Egyptians. And the people of Israel feared the Lord and believed the Lord. And his servant Moses in chapter 15, verse 1, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, and uh, may I say to you, this is the first time Israel's or anyone has ever sung according to the record in the word of God. For 2,500 years, man had been on earth, but there was no singing. This was the first singing. Why could they sing? Because of the wonderful work of deliverance that God had wrought for them. And may I say to you, you have no song in your soul, you have no song on your lips that isn't a song which is the result of the, the delivering grace of God. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. You really don't have a genuine song in your soul unless it's that song of deliverance. Now we have been delivered at a great price like the children of Israel were. 
For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, received by tradition from the vain conversation of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. We are a delivered people. We are a very privileged people, if you may know that. And God says, I brought the whole house of Israel up out of Egypt. Not only were they delivered people, but if you take notice in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, and you have I known of all the families of the earth. They were a chosen, a selected people. And I wonder if God is not exact when he uses Israel to be an illustration of the child of God today. Did you know that you're a chosen one? That's right. We read in Ephesians 1, 4, He hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now please understand, my dear friend, that's not God selecting some for heaven and approbating others to hell. Having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. No, it literally is telling us this. God selected before the foundation of the earth, he selected that those who would be his would be those in Christ. Now, he could have selected all Baptists to be his, or all Methodists, or all Presbyterians, or all Catholics, or all, all Hebrews, and so forth, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because that in neither one of those categories could he make any sinner holy and without blame before himself. So, before the foundation of the world, he chose that those who would be his would be those in Christ. So, we are indeed chosen ones, aren't we? Yes, we are. So blessed of God. And he had a right to make the selection of those who would be, be his, those who would be in Christ. Every person that comes to Jesus Christ, God will receive. God will give him to Christ. In Psalm 17, 2, it says, I've given eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. How do you know God has given you to the Lord Jesus? Let the Lord Jesus say, in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father giveth me will come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God will not let Jesus Christ have any that, are not, that have not come to Christ. No one can go to heaven that has not come to Jesus Christ. God in his sovereignty settled that before the foundation of the world. Now the sovereignty of God is something that you and I must acknowledge. We may not want to give access, uh, uh, we may not want to acquiesce to it, but nevertheless we must. It's there. You may not understand it. You say you don't. I don't know why we can't, because it's so simple. It's presented to us in a very graphic way in John 3.16. You know that there are 25 words in John 3.16, and the middle word is son. And the first 12 words in John 3.16 define and describe the sovereignty of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. That's simple, isn't it? He was not coerced. He did not counsel with anyone. This is the sovereignty of God. He chose to love the world so much that he gave his only begotten. But on the other word, side of the word son is man's responsibility. That whosoever believeth in him, that is the son, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Twelve words. So you see, God's sovereignty is something that can be understood. And it is exercised when he says. It is exercised when he says that you and I must be redeemed by blood and he chose us in Christ and Christ was the one who shed his blood for us. Now, not only were they chosen people but they were an enlightened people. If you back up to chapter 2 about verse 4 you'll read this. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four will I not turn away the punishment thereof because they have despised the law of the Lord. Now, to despise the law of the Lord knew that they, uh, reveals that they knew the Lord. They were enlightened people. The oracles of God were committed unto them. And I want to tell you, dear friend, as a child of God, you're an enlightened one. 
Do you know that living in your body is the dear person of the Holy Spirit? What know you not that your body is the temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirits, which are his. Why is he in your body? First John chapter two, verse 20 says, and ye have an unction from the Holy One that you may know all things. Doesn't that tell me and tell you that you're an enlightened person? You may try to ignore the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit who indwells you tries to impart, but nevertheless, the enlightenment is there. And if you go down to verse 27 of 1 John 2, you'll read something like this. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, for the same anointing teacheth you of all things. You're quite an enlightened individual. You may try to subdue that divine enlightenment by intellectualism, by ignoring the indwelling Holy Spirit, by resisting the enlightenment he tries to generate in your thoughts, you may try to get by that way, but nevertheless, you're an enlightened individual. Now like Judah, like Israel, many of us do not live up to that enlightenment. We don't live up to it. Now since we are privileged ones, as Israel was privileged, I want you to see that privilege begets responsibility. Are you acquainted with the responsibility that's yours because you were a privileged individual like the Israelites were before God? Responsibility, indeed. Here's a responsibility. Ephesians 5 verse 15. See then, since you are a redeemed one, since you are a chosen one, since you are an enlightened one, see then that ye walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. What does circumspectly mean? It means to walk with regards to those who circumvent you. Those who live about you in your own home. Those who are about you at the job, in the plant, wherever it is. You are to held responsible by God to walk with regards to those who circumvent you, surround you. They're watching you. That's what the Savior mean. I met in Matthew 6 verse 15 where he said, uh, uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Yes, we have a responsibility. Redeeming the time, says verse 16 of Ephesians 5. That's a responsibility? Yes, it is. Because we are delivered ones and because we're chosen and enlightened, we are supposed to redeem the time. That is, buy up the time. Now, God can only redeem souls. You and I can't do that. But God cannot redeem time. God lives in eternity. He's the ever-present one. He's the great I am. So he can't buy up time for you. Time is something that God has put in your hands and mine. And we must buy it up. No one else can do it for us. Redeem the time. Buy it up. So you see, privilege begets responsibility. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And verse 18 of Ephesians 5 says, The will of the Lord is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So you see, responsibility, uh, privilege begets responsibility. Now, God itemizes the sins of his people Israel. And don't you forget it, my dear friend. He knows every propensity. He knows every proclivity of a child of God. He has them all itemized. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That great Bema, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And give an account of the things done in our body. Give an account? How can we give an account if God isn't keeping an account? He's keeping account all of those idle words of yours, all of those wasted hours of yours, all of those questionable acts of yours. God is keeping account. 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things done in our body according that we have done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So God itemizes the sins of Israel, if you please. Let's take up Judah now, for instance. We read how that they despised the law of the Lord in verse 4. Now that is, they absolutely ignored the Lord, uh, the law of the Lord. Are you guilty of that? Do you not ignore the word of God? Aren't there some portions of the word of God that you haven't read in a month of Sundays or perhaps even years? Is this the first time that you've ever opened the word of God to the prophecy or to the message of Amos that God committed to him? God has something to say to you and me through Amos. See, we are so guilty of ignoring the word of God. Now we're pious people and we seek to impress folk with something that we aren't, that we're Bible lovers and we know so little of the word of God. They despise the word of the Lord. They did something else, they didn't keep his commandments. If you look the latter part of verse four, you'll discover that by their lies, they caused the people to err. Of course, we're not guilty of that. But we can stand up and sing, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, and we don't mean it at all. And there's some young person sitting out there that's hearing dad sing, have thine own way, Lord, and he'll go home and he'll, he'll hear dad do something in the, or, see, or observe dad doing something in the home, and he knows God isn't having much of that fellow's way, having, having his way much with that fellow. Have thine own way, Lord, or my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of... Uh, Sin, I resign. I wonder how many people we cause to err because of the lies that we sing. I, mean, I wonder how many people we cause to err because of the things that we do. That lie of life that we live. You see, God is itemizing them. When you get down to verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not remove the punishment thereof. Because what have they done? They have sold the righteous for silver. That's right. For materialism, for a dollar, they'd take advantage of a brother Christian. Oh, you know how it is. Well, I can help you out, my friend. You're in a tight now. You're without a job. You want to sell your car or you want to sell your home. I'll buy it from you. And you know that when you bought it, you weren't endeavoring to assist that dear brother. You were buying it so you could make a good, handsome new dollar off of the deal. You know it. Selling the righteous for silver. Ah, God is itemizing the sins of the believers. You're going to give an account. Number two, you read, and the poor for a pair of shoes. And when you get to the next verse, which is verse 7, they pant for the dust of the earth upon the head of the poor. Do you know what that is literally saying? Taking advantage of a poor man in order to advance your own self. And um, your own material uh, amassing. That's exactly what it means. Taking advantage of another to uh, serve your own personal advantage. Well, you get the last part of that verse. For this, uh, and, and a man and his father will go in under the same maid. What's that? Immoral permissiveness? Oh, yes. He's pointing out, he's itemizing the sins of the people of Israel. He knows them all. 
Isn't it strange that when we start uh, worshiping at the feet of the God of materialism, that immoral permissiveness seems to be just the manner of life? Don't you forget it, my friend. God knows what you did at that convention, that business convention. Oh, he knows all about that. Your wife and your family doesn't know anything about it. But you chuckle and you say to me, well, that's all in a day's work for my company. I want to ask you, whom do you allow to set standards of righteousness for your life? Amen. A business, a corporation, or God in his word? Amen. A man and his father will go in under the same maid. He continues to itemize them. The next verse, which is verse 8, he talks about the judicial injustice of Israel. How that those who sit in responsibilities of judging the people of Israel, they will lie down on clothes that are laid as a pledge. What does that mean? Men and women who uh, have, are out on bail, so to speak, and these who are responsible for exercising judicial justice, they will take what was given in bail, you know, that is, items of cloth, articles of, uh, of, of uh, 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 garment, you know, clothing, articles of clothing, and they will take these articles and go before the various altars in Israel, and they will bow down, or they will kneel, or they'll, in a pious manner and posture, they'll appear to be an outstanding spiritual individual. God says, I'm reading your heart. I know that cloth that you're kneeling on. I know those clothes that you have there. You took them unjustly as a pawn from somebody that was trying to be honest in court. But you're the dishonest one. Yes. When you get to the next verse, which is verse 9, God says, you know what I did to the Amorite Israel? I destroyed the Amorite whose height is like the cedar whose strength is like the oak. I destroyed the fruit from above and the root from beneath. O house of Israel, I delivered you from Egypt. And as I brought you out of Egypt, I destroyed the Amorite in front of you and before you. I even look at the next verse, which is verse 11. He said, I chose your sons to be prophets. I chose your young men to be Nazarites. But what have you done? You have said to your sons, Oh, I'd most rather anything than have my son in the ministry. You just didn't want a spiritual man hanging around the house because his presence made you feel guilty. You said, prophesy not. Son, don't preach all the Bible. Don't make yourself a religious fanatic. A spiritual radical, don't do that. Don't prophesy at all. Anyhow. And for your sons whom I chose to be Nazarites. Now a Nazarite was a separated individual by God in Israel. And they weren't allowed to do certain things. And particularly one of them was to drink wine. And you have made your sons whom I chose as Nazarites to drink wine. What's this? A Nazarite was to be an illustration of the separated life that God demanded of his people. And he demands it today. But the fathers in Israel said to their sons, whom God selected as Nazarites, Now, uh, don't be a religious crank. Come on. This business of separation 
Eh, it's nothing. It's not for our day. It was for a time past. Like some believers are trying to persuade themselves to believe as well as others. Oh, if there's any passage of Scripture we don't like to read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? But come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith verse 17, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Oh, no, not separation, not that, not that. I wonder, my dear friend, how many of us have kept people from that separated life that God demands because of something we said to them or some encouragement we gave them not to maintain a separated life. You gave your sons wine to drink and they're not supposed to have it. Now God never intended that his people Israel would be a part of the ungodly lives of the enemies of God in Israel that surrounded them. No more than God intended for your life and mine to be a part of this world system. Philippians 3.20 declares to us, our conversation is in heaven from which also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Our what is in heaven? Our conversation. What's conversation? It's citizenship. What citizenship? It's manner of life. Our manner of life, God declares, is in heaven. But by the way some of us dress, our manner of life is of this world system. Amen. By the way some of us conduct ourselves, our manner of life is of this earth. Amen. By what we eat and by what we drink and where we go, our manner of life is of this world system. Now what does it mean that our manner of life is, in, is, is of heaven? Whatever's going on in heaven, that should be our manner of life down here. Peter said, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him. Not somebody or something on earth, but show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what God expected of the children of Israel, and this is what he expects of you, because these things happen unto them for in samples and are written for our admonition. Yes? Now, what's the punishment? He has itemized their iniquities. He's itemized their sins. Their, and uh, what's their punishment? If you begin at about verse 14, he says to you, and he says to me, that you are not going to escape who are of the swift. Now, you know, there's some people who think that they can outrun God's chastisement. There's some people who think that they can outrun God's judgment. Some people who think they can outrun God's corrections. And more often than not, they will wrap their automobile around a utility pole. Those who are of the swift cannot escape. If you continue in verse 14, you will read that those who are strong and mighty will not deliver themselves from his judgment and from his chastisement. You can't either. Be strong, be mighty, intellectually, physically, mentally, but you'll never be able to deliver yourself from the chastisement of the Lord. You go to verse 15. He talks about that individual who handles the bow. He says, you'll not be able to stand who handled the bow. Now, who is an individual that handles a bow and arrow? Well, literally, he's a strategist. 
You know there's a scientific strategy in, 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 in archery, handling the bow and the arrow. Just like there's a scientific strategy in the uh, game of golfing. Believe me, if you don't apply the scientific regulations, you know, and specifications for golfing, you can be a good slicer and you can be a good puller and everything else, you know, and you'll be chasing your ball in every direction except down the fairway. And he says, you who are strategists, all of your strategy will not enable you to escape the Lord's chastening, the Lord's judgment, the Lord's correction. Would you please look at verse 16? This is quite significant. He talks about those who are courageous. Ah, uh, who are they? Those who are courageous to where they will say, uh, well, I'm not afraid to die. So don't talk to me about my manner of life. I'm not afraid to meet the Lord. Oh, you're quite courageous, my friend. You really are. But I want you to know God declares in the last line that you'll flee out naked when he's through chastening you. Amen. He'll unmask the child of God. Show you up for really what you are. And some of us who have occupied the position of the sacred lectern, in that size, if he doesn't chasten us down here to where we are exposed before our fellow believer, in that day, some of us are going to hang our heads in shame. And we're going to cry, oh, the years of sinning wasted. Could I but recall them now? I'd give them all to Jesus at his feet. I'd humbly bow. Now you say, oh, Mr. Stewart, this is for the Old Testament. This isn't for me today. I'm living under grace. May I read the New Testament counterpart of what we have read in chapters 2 and 3 of uh, the prophecy of Amos? Would you go with me to Romans chapter 1? Open your Bibles, please. And beginning at verse 18, here's the counterpart to the prophecy of Amos. Verse 18, for the wrath of God. What's that? His judgment. Is chastening. Of course, for the believer, he chastens us in love, but we think it's in wrath. Like I used to tell my son, when it was necessary for me to discipline him, I said, son, it hurts me a lot worse than it does you. My father told me that, and I just couldn't believe he was telling me the truth until after I became a father. And so it is true here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, literally, that expression is who suppress the truth in their unrighteous ways. Does this embrace you? Is this God's description of your life? Are you suppressing the truth in your unright living, your unrighteousness? Are you subduing the truth of God? You're trying because you're sort of a bully in a certain group. You're just trying to impress others. Oh, it's not going to be like this. Well, what you read in the Bible, how do you know that's true? Hold down the truth, suppress it in their unrighteousness. Because when they knew God, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Now that literally means that I don't care who you are, whether you profess to be a Christian or not, do you know, my dear friend, you'll never excuse yourself for not having an awareness of God? Because that which may be known of God is written on their conscience. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. That's the internal evidence that God is. Now, you may try to escape it all you, uh, with all your, your effort and all your might, but you can't do it. You have an awareness in your conscience, and every person that has come into this world from Adam to this day, 
God has written in their conscience an awareness of himself. That's why we have people to whom the message of Jesus Christ has never gone. They're still engaging in religious activities. They may worship the sun, they may worship a snake, they may worship the water, or they may worship creation or something else. And the only reason they're doing it is to try to find out that one who has been written on their conscience. Now verse 20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Now we've already talked about the internal evidence written on your conscience that God is. Now he says, I'm going to give you external evidence. You look out there. Look at nature. For the invisible things of him. You can't see God. You can't know him because you're just alive. The invisible things of him are clearly seen. Clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they're without excuse. I haven't met a man yet. I haven't met a man in my lifetime, 38 years in the ministry, I haven't met one yet. But when I called his attention, who, uh, when he didn't think that there was a God and he tried to excuse himself, you know, in his own ignorance and the like, trying to impress me that, how do I know that there is a God? I say to him, do you believe in architects? Oh yes, sure. You believe that there is a, there's a designer behind every house that is built. Did you know that God tells us that in Hebrews chapter three, verse four? For every house there's a designer, but he who designed all things is God. You can't look at creation without recognizing that there is a master hand behind all of this, a master designer behind it all. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Absolutely without excuse. For when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, their foolish hearts being darkened. Now look at the next verse. Oh, yes. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What's this? Oh, these fellows who deny, these women, these young people who deny that God is. How do I know he's up there? If he's up there, make, him, make yourself real to me, Lord, and so forth. God's already done all of that that he will do. He's written it on your conscience. He's shown it to you in nature, and he gave his only begotten son to be his expression to you. Now God's done all he's going to do to try to show himself to you. And if you're not willing to accept what he's already done, then the consequences are yours and the consequences are mine. But because we don't want to accept the revelation God has made of himself, we try to profess ourselves to be wise. And in God's sight, we become fools. Do you know what our intellectualism causes us to do? Next verse, change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. That's what an intellectual age will do regarding God. Humanize God and deify man. And what's the result? The next verse, which is verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up through the lusts of their own flesh to dishonor their bodies between themselves. What's this? Do we wonder? Does it seem strange to us that in our time of an unbelievable rapid rise of intellectualism that there seems to be the same comparable rise of immoral permissiveness God said it you just try to reduce God to a human being humanize him you just try to deify yourself and the first thing that's going to be the consequence and result is evidence that God has his patience has run out with you. 
Do you remember back in, 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 in uh, Amos chapter 2? About verse, uh, what is that, about verse 13 or 14? I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed when it is full of sheaves. What's that? I've just borne you as long as I can, Israel. Now it's chastisement. Now it's judgment. So here God is saying the same thing. I've taken it with you as long as I can. Now I'm just going to withdraw my hand. I'm going to give you up to the lust of your own hearts to dishonor your bodies between yourselves. What's the next step? Verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Go ahead. Humanize God. Deify yourself. Try to ignore him. The next step you will take is say, well, how do I know that book is true? Change the truth of God into a lie. Attribute it to the work of some man or group of men instead of taking it indeed as the word of God that has stood the test of the ages and the hammer of every critic that has ever lived. Change the truth of God into lie. Worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever for this cause. God gave them up to what? Vile affections. For even their women did change that which is against nature. Change the natural use into that which is against nature. The next verse, likewise also the men. There's your immoral permissiveness. Now verse 28. For even as they did not like to retain God in their thoughts. Come on, young people. How many of you want to retain the, uh, God in your thoughts during the day? Adults, how many of you like to retain God in your thoughts? Even as they did not like to retain God in their minds, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are unseemly and not convenient. Then he itemizes them there. And when you get to verse 32, he declares, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of punishment, death, not only do them, but have pleasure in them that do them. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's the counterpart to Israel as God describes them in the second chapter of the prophecy of Amos. There isn't anyone that can immune themselves to the chastisement, the corrections, and the judgments of God. You may divorce yourself. You may remove yourself from the claims of God's grace. God can't help you there. But there is one thing that not even a child of God can do, and that is immune himself or herself to the correcting chastisement of the Lord. Are you ready for it? Shall we bow in prayer? Our Father and our God, we can only present the word. We cannot force it into the hearts of people. You have declared, O oh, you who have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit saith. And may every person in this room have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit has tried to say through the word of God. There are none, there isn't one that can immune or claim immunity to the chastisement and to the judgment of the Lord. Though we can ignore the grace of God, we can't escape the destiny that is ours because of sin. Oh, speak, Lord. Bring some to the decision that their hearts have longed to make for days and weeks and months and years. I pray in the Savior's dear name. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled Chastisement and Correction that William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. 
We invite you to join us next week as we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.